There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark, and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. How are you, Alex? I'm fine. Do I sound a little disembodied? I'm I'm asking you, and also warning our listeners that I am away from home and in a rather terrifying hotel room where you have to you have to control everything with an iPad. I've become a modern Gosh. person. Are you in the future, Alex? I'm in the... I've gone to the future. I can have a shower with any number of lights of different colours playing around me. What, really? So is there no switches? Like, you can't turn the lights on with a switch? There is a switch, but I think... But it's very rudimentary. If you want any kind of nuance in your environment, then then you must... And you do want nuance in your environment, if I know you. Yes, you're absolutely right. I like to curate it to absolute perfection. So I'm away from home. Apologies uh, if I sound slightly crackly, uh, but I think nonetheless, I, any crackles in my voice are going to be eclipsed by the brilliance of our guest. Because this week, Lucy, we've really gone for it, haven't we, self-improvement-wise? Really tackling the big issues. It, we really are. So if, you, you know, if anybody wants to know, A, how to live, or B, how to do anything... Just stay with us for the next forty minutes or so, and um, you know I hope we will have I hope we will have we will have sorted it out by then. We can't talk about gardening today no. because you're in a hotel room, yeah. but there where there are upcoming things that we can talk about, aren't yes. there? Such as Hay Festival, which is not far away and has got all sorts of exciting things happening. Um, I was having a look through the. The brochure, and it's got, um, it's got Margaret Atwood, it's got Barbara Kingsolver, it's got Stormzy, it's got David Olashoga, it's got a bit of everything. You're going yeah. to be there, aren't you, Alex? I am going to be there. I'll be interviewing a programme of writers. I'm very excited about that, and you will too, Lucy. I will, yeah, yeah. And we've got some. Well, Toby's going to be there. We've got, we've got some TLS events. Toby's going to be interviewing Eleanor Catton. We talked about her book, didn't we, Burnham Wood? Uh, and I'm going to be talking to Sarah Raven about um, plants. I wonder how that came about. Well, quite. I'm also going to be talking to Sarah Raven at a different festival, at the Cambridge Literary Festival. I think before you talk to her in Hay. Brilliant. So I'll, I'll, I'll make sure, you know, she says what I particularly like talking about is tulips. I'll pass that on to you. Yes, that would be very good. Or if you say... Um... You know, what about uh, wallflowers? And she just suddenly turns stony faced and says, never mention that in front of me again. That would be good to know. I must remember that's that I must remember to do that, mustn't I? Must remember. And yeah, there's all sorts of there's all sorts of things on it. Hey, there's a lot of there's a lot of music as well, isn't there, I think, this year. There's loads and loads of great writers and musicians and performers of all kinds. Um, but there are also a couple of special themes, aren't there, Lucy? They're they're sort of unsurprisingly the big and right now pressing theme. Yes, they do seem to be. Yeah, there's there's a lot about the environment and sort of how to be in it and how to improve it and how to, you know, conserve it and save it and that sort of thing. And also a lot about Ukraine 
I think there's there's quite a few Ukrainian writers there, I think. Is that right? And talking about Ukrainian writing. Yeah. So there's a lot of, uh, as you say, a lot of wonderful stuff. Go and have a look and, and see what takes you fancy. Before we get to that, though, we are going to help with some other of the big topics, aren't we? Uh, and I, I actually might, I'm getting a T-shirt made, Lucy. Do you remember last um, last week I was telling you how I was so enjoying listening to I Capture the Castle? Yes, I do remember that, of and, course. Well, I finished, you finished? I finished listening to it and there's a wonderful part at the end. This isn't really a spoiler to anybody who hasn't. Uh, but when uh, the marvellous character Topaz, our heroine's uh, stepmother, is talking about the writing being done by her by their their writer, uh, Peter Familius, and she says it's a work of spherical profundity, and I thought I may get spherical <laughs> profundity made into a t-shirt because I think lovely that, that is that is what I am absolutely aspiring to. I think and it's a very good name for a concept album. Don't you think? Don't yeah, you think, I do. Shall we do it. We may yeah. do it on another podcast. Um, yeah. But profundity, uh, spherical or otherwise, is what we're talking about. And aspiration is what we're talking about this week. Because coming up on this week's show, Adam Gopnik's quest for self-improvement and philosopher Sky Cleary on how to deal with life's hardships. But first, we're going to look at how to do things or to put it more elegantly, about how to achieve mastery, even later in life when we're typically not learning new things anymore. Adam Gopnik is a staff writer at The New Yorker, an essayist and the author of lots of elegant, thoughtful books on topics such as Paris, New York, food, winter, Darwin and Lincoln. His new book is called The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery, and it leads us through his attempts to learn new skills at a relatively advanced age. Nat Segnit has written us a lovely and perceptive review and joins us now to guide us through the guide. Nat, many thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to start very much at the beginning. First things first, what does the title, The Real Work, what does that mean and where does it come from? Well, it's from Magician's Shop Talk. So what it means is that once you've mastered, once you've got the technique of, uh, let's say, a, a close-up card trick, uh, under your belt the real work comes when you add some magic to it you, you make something that's merely efficient into something that's elegant and and delightful it's the sort of it's the superfluity essential to all art and and human accomplishment if you like and it's it's also crucially it's not about being original is it really it's not the guy who devises the trick it's the guy who sort of makes it beautiful and makes it work and makes the everyone go ooh ah when they see it precisely so yeah so the the trick itself is from the repertoire essentially but the real work comes in the individual magician what what the individual magician brings to it what what uh what frills and furblows and elegance he or she brings to it Mm -hmm. yeah sorry I said he because he was saying he makes a point of saying it often starts with he's quite specific 12 year old boys <laughs> yes that's true that is it is it is so it appears quite a gendered activity more male magicians than than female but is it a kind yeah. of question of style partly or flair is it like the sort of equivalent of the garnish on the cheese souffle or whatever yes I think so it, I mean it put me slightly in mind of what um John Updike said, in defence of those apologists for what's sometimes called invisible prose, uh, his prose, of course, being highly visible, uh, his argument being that, you know, when we look at a painting, we are we are aware that we're looking at a painting, not at what, what is being depicted. And it's that style, it's that uh, subjectivity, it's that sort of human um, imperfection, in fact, in some ways, that reminds us of what we're seeing and gives us the experience of art or of accomplish accomplishment or mastery um magic he actually talks quite a lot about magic doesn't he it's, it's quite unexpected and, and and even though he's not the one learning the magic but it's, it's well, his, that's his son learning the magic isn't it for a that, while that's true yes actually that's one of the things i rather liked about the book is that is that um uh, as much as I, I admired the first chapter which is about him learning to draw better um you know, a glance at the contents page might might give you a little kind of flicker of disappointment that it's going to be like one of those sort of Channel 4 series whereby uh, Claudia Winkman or something is given a challenge every week 
Um, but actually, the book resists formula in that way, in that after that drawing chapter, he moves on to uh, to close up magic from a slightly different perspective. As you say, it starts with his son's interest and uh, kind of budding mastery of close up um, close up magic, and then becomes a rather new New Yorkery piece of kind of repertorial of the big schism in American magic between classicists, traditionalists like this guy Jamie Ian Swiss, and the big showmen like David Blaine, who are really trying to erase the distinction between between magic and performance art. So and then it becomes yeah, about sort of illusion and making you think about illusion and making you think about the kind of limits of human capacity, I suppose. I'm put in mind of, you know, him lying in a glass box or submerging himself in water. It's that sort of death-defying feat kind of thing, isn't it? Rather than the rabbits out of hats sort of stuff. That's right. But that forms part of what I think is a really excellent sort of analysis of, of the epistemics of magic, really, that... Um, Gottlieb gives us, uh, you know, he conceives of it so via this guy, Jamie Ian Swiss, as an experiment in empathy, as a kind of contest of minds, so that magicians simply have a superior grasp of the way our minds work. And the, the secret to a trick might indeed be banal, extremely simple, but set up so that we as the viewer are una unable to imagine it. So the magician leads us down an explanatory highway, as Gottlieb puts it, from which there is no exit, or better still, from which there are six exits, all of them blocked. And that's where the mastery of the great magicians lie. Mm. It's sort of in their theory of other minds, them, them yeah. m being able to to feel, think about what you will feel and make you feel, um, you know, wonder and awe, I suppose. That's what they're after, isn't it? Precisely. And there's, a, there's an American magician called Whit Hayman, who, Hayden rather, who um, Gopnik quotes, Say, uh, saying uh, uh, magic is putting a burr under the saddle of the mind, which I thought mm. was kind of nice. Well, it, it makes me feel uncomfortable that though. I mean, I think it's supposed to, I suppose. <laughs> I but think I, I think you are. I think you are. It is. It is a feeling yes. of kind of delighted discomfort. Yes. I've gone a, down a rabbit hole here now. Why are magicians all men, or largely men? Where are the female magicians? What? Why is it gendered? He sort well, of well, doesn't deal with that, does he? Really, not, not at all. I mean, it really that really isn't touched on. Um, Sorry, I've, I've no, it's okay. It's it is interesting. I'm just fascinated. <laughs> but you see, it's also about trying to teach yourself things. Now, I've never, I must say, even as a child, I don't think been tempted to learn a card trick. But maybe I should start to redress this this kind of gender this imbalance. this this gender imbalance. I think you should. <laughs> well, I suppose the point is traditionally. It's the, the the woman is always getting sawn in half rather than doing the sawing. I suppose that's the glamorous assistant. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Perhaps it's just um, that men are natural liars, I guess, and that it's it's really all about fraudulence and and um, uh, distraction and wrong footing the viewer or the participant. I don't know. This is this is the I most. I feel I've most... utterly derailed us, Nat. I have utterly derailed us now. <laughs> I didn't provide right, that. Let's it's what we might call the real work. I've done the real work of the podcast there of putting my own individual slightly chaotic stamp on it. But yes. uh, it is about, isn't it, this book about learning stuff, about reaching yeah. a certain point in your life when you may think you don't have to learn anything else. But why not? Why not suddenly learn a language or something else? Well, precisely. Um and there's a very nice point he makes towards the end, which is that um, he admits that he can take great satisfaction in getting a little bit better at the things he knows he'll never be very good at, uh, driving, for instance. Whereas the one discipline he really has devoted his life to, the one thing that he has a shot at mastering, in other words, writing books like this, is a source of constant dissatisfaction. Because in achieving that level of you know, near mastery, whatever you want to call it, he can see how quite hard, how far off real perfection lies. So he says we can do some things badly and still feel good about having done them, and some things well and still feel badly about not doing them well. But there's comfort in this. Equilibrium of mind is achieved by doing both. Mm. Is I was wondering about that. He does talk about the role of the critic, doesn't he? And 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 think about it in the chapter when he's learning to draw, but precisely yeah. because he he has worked for an art as an art critic for a long time, and feels a bit uncomfortable that he can't you know draw anything at all. Well, um, yes, he feel he feels pretty fraudulent criticizing stuff he's unable to practice himself. Did any of that? Did did that any of that chime with you as a critic? 
I really, lo- I really love that chapter. I have to say, um, it, it's a, it's a slightly different case to kind of. Um, I mean, I suppose I could describe myself pompously as a kind of writer critic. So there's less of a distance between uh, what I criticise and, and what I spend the rest yes, of my time time, time doing than already. was the case yeah, with yeah. with uh, Gottman. But he approaches it in a very interesting way, I think, because actually. Mm. The majority of the, of, the, of the art that he was covering as critic of the New Yorker was conceptual, that had stored life drawing away in the attic. But in recent years, so he says, he's become more and more taken by the figurative, to pure craft, which of course he lacks entirely. Um, you know, he 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 um, gets interested in the ancient tradition of atelier realism. So he apprentices himself to this someone he describes as a real hard ass, a, a neo-realist painter called J- Jacob Collins whose mission is to revive that old tradition without succumbing to, to sentiment or, or cliche. So he sort of walks the delicate line between classicism and reactionary grievance keep, uh, keeping, as he puts it. And so under this guy's uh, guidance, he learns to look. He learns to see what he actually sees, Gottnick, that is. Um, not what his teacher describes as the kind of predetermined symbol set of arms and torso and legs in the case of a, uh, in the case of a life model, but shapes as Gopnik subjectively perceives them, just as we might you know, see a, a, a weasel or a camel in a cloud. So he looks at a life model and sees, quote, a kind of hamster with soft rabbit ears where his shoulder joined his arm. And so I, I suppose I, I, it chimed with me to the extent that, that, Art is thus life drawing is thus shown to be like every other discipline, uh, a kind of slow carpentering of fragments into the illusion of a harmonious whole, and on the other hand, a kind of species of relinquishment, really, a kind of capitulation to feeling or instinct. So it's at once an effort of attentional focus that's also a letting go. Yeah, it's yes, it's it's well, and I'm I'm going to bring it down to earth a bit more by mentioning what his driving instructor says, who 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 says it, who sums it all up, doesn't he, in one key piece of advice? Become the noodle. <laughs> there you go. You gotta become, become the noodle. noodle. We all we all have to become. <laughs> we are becoming noodles ourselves in our mastery of this podcast. But that's it. Okay, it's, I, it is, I need it that. I need that unpacked. Or, or cooked al dente, or whatever it is. What is the noodle, and why do I have to become it? What his driving instructor Arturo appears to mean is concentrate and relax, and that's the trick to driving. In this case, in Manhattan, which he's never been had the guts to do, uh, and Arturo teaches him to concentrate very hard on the road in front of him, but also not to get too wound up about it. Um, I think Arturo absolutely does mean it. It seems to me Arturo is a very good teacher, isn't he? Because he gets he is, driving no, in the middle of like, New York within, yeah. uh, you know, an hour. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's an it's an excellent bit of advice. Mm, mm. It's that you have to the noodle is limp, Alex. So you have to you have to not hold anything. You have to just sort of let go and and also be incredibly focused so that you don't die. I see. Is that, yes, is that it, helpful? Well, it <laughs> does seem... That excellent, you know, relax but pay attention advice that people give you in lots of, you know, it's like being told to calm down when you're feeling not calm. I mean, <laughs> exactly. Easy to say, difficult to do, but I get that. But going back to the, the you know, the drawing advice, it yeah. does seem to me that that more sort of empathetic, emotional kind of feeling sort of your way into something does sound more up my street than what I think or perhaps unfairly as the kind of more Gladwellian sort of 10,000 hours and geniuses and outliers and all that kind of thing. It seems more approachable and friendly in a way. Is that fair? Well, you know, coincidentally enough, I'm exactly 9,999 hours into my project to debunk the 10,000 hours. <laughs> Catch me at exactly <laughs> the right, the right Oh, imagine if it all fell apart now. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that, that's, that's, again, one of the great strengths of the book, which is that he is, uh, Gopnik is kind of open to that, to that, uh, that, way of thinking in that he conceives of mastery as achievable via a series of kind of micro achievements which you know and once you achieve some kind of competence then those micro micro achievements kind of flow into one another into this he compares it rather uh pleasingly to the um phenomenon of persistence of vision in cinema it's lots of little moments uh smoothed over to give the illusion of, of, of continuity um but that's so that's on the one hand but on the other hand he's still kind of open to the mystery as the subtitle as the subtitle suggests 
he avoids that sort of tedious and mechanistic and inherently sort of neoliberal idea of making everything measurable and acquirable like an MBA uh, by not explaining it, not explaining away the mystery of, of, of mastery by leaving some element of mystery uh, mm. preserved. He's also got that lovely thing in terms of specifically of the 10,000 hours. He says that thing about that we that we we look at the people who are out, absolutely outstanding in their field and we think they oh, well, yeah. they've done their 10,000 hours and they're marvelous. But actually he says there are lots and lots and lots and lots of people who are also really good at it. We know three chess players, but there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of really good chess players. And 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 that's just as valid as the three champions that we know and it's the same whether you're talking about cooking or drawing or chess or which I think is a very good point it's not it's just really about the Beatles or you know Michelangelo or whoever it is well precisely um but also importantly in the case of the, the Beatles and and uh and Michelangelo and Roger Federer I mean I don't want to to watch them and and think yeah well they've just put in their 10,000 hours I want to be floored by them I want to be rendered awestruck by their god-given talent so i mean reading something like outliers where which you know popularized the 10,000 hour theory i felt a bit like do you remember kind of dotty in tom stoppard's jumpers who was heartbroken that men have landed on the moon and thus killed its poetry i i i, I conceive of the 10,000 hour theory like that you know leave the mastery alone both for those people who are distinctly average and everything like me and for you know the world's handful of geniuses now, but Bob, I think... does he have something to say for, I mean, Gopnik or any of the people that he talks to about the, in defence of the average, as it were, because there's quite a lot of things I'd like to have a basic competence at, you know, that they would be useful to me or I might just get pleasure out of doing them. Um, learning things, particularly as you go on through life, I mean, it doesn't always have to be a matter of acing them, does it? Precisely. Uh, no, and that, and that, as you know, as I, as I mentioned, that's that that sort of um, where he ends up at the end of the book is knowing that he's not going to achieve mastery in any of the disciplines that the book touches on, on drawing and and um, close up magic and uh, ballroom dancing and boxing. But he can actually take great satisfaction in having had a go, where. He will never achieve that sort of satisfaction in in the one area where he actually has devoted many tens of thousands of, of hours of practice, that is writing, because in that instance, he has a deeper understanding of what perfection is and how far he falls short of it. Um, but there's a great pleasure in, you know, just being slightly better at baking bread or, or uh, doing the foxtrot with his daughter. Can you tell us, tell us about the alternative subtitle for the book that you came up with? Well, you know, this is a bit unfair. Gottmik does. It's a bit unfair, for, but it is funny. <laughs> a bit, he does come in for a bit of stick for his, you know, a level of uh, kind of Manhattan-like complacency. And I and I did wonder if, if the book might alternatively have been titled you know, "How to Use Your Ample Free Time When You're a Staff Writer at the New Yorker with a House <laughs> God." But that really, and that that would be to miss the woods for the trees. Really, it's so well written. It's so penetratingly intelligent. It's so epigrammatic that uh, to you know carp on that level is really is i i like that very much nat though because it's my (laughs) you know i could simply say well we'd all be able to unicycle if we had the time well that is true (laughs) how how you're how how you're i mean apart from as writers and uh, literary critics and presenters of podcasts are there any areas of mastery that you can boast Oh, gosh, that's a terrible question to ask. <laughs> I like to think that I'm quite a good party thrower, but I'm not sure that, that really comes into it. But I will, So I will say the thing I'd actually like to master, which is not uh, Sanskrit or an arpeggio. It's, I'd just like to be able to do basic plumbing. Do you think oh, so I could do this? That would be useful. That. that would yeah. be useful. Yeah, yeah that would I'd be brilliant. I actually just want to not be at the mercy of anybody when the stopcock goes. That's yeah. what I'd like to be able to do. And dry stone walling. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Set <laughs> um, the bar ambitious. high for you there, Lucy. Well, uh, no, no, I'm I'm going to do another. I'm going to do another one that uh, that I can't do, which is like him. I can't drive, and um, I feel like maybe I maybe I should. I mean, I might at some point. 
Um, I feel like in my heart, if I drive, I'll either be absolutely brilliant and go everywhere really fast or a total disaster. So that might be an argument for me not driving. I'm not sure. He's of Gopnik says... Sorry, Gopnik says the mastery of driving lies less in learning to see and steer than in learning step by step to be selectively blind, prudently indifferent. I guess because if you woke up to the fact that not only are you entirely free to pilot a two-ton hunk of metal at 80 miles an hour, but all the other nutcases on the the motorway are too, you'd never get in the car. Well, you've put me off now. I'm not going to do it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Just just before you get to your 10,000 hours uh, on Malcolm Gladwell, we're going to have to stop, Nat, I'm afraid. Thank you very much for um, talking to us and nudging us along along the road to more mastery. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Still to come on the show, life is short and life is hard. The philosopher Sky Cleary joins us to assess two books that offer a way through. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. Life is tough, and before you know it, it's over. That's the cheerful news from two new books, Life is Short by Dean Rickles and Life is Hard by Kieran Setia. But both authors want to help us to find a way through, and to see if they've succeeded, we've asked Sky Cleary, who's reviewed them in this week's paper, to join us. Welcome, Sky. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. What a couple of books to get through. It's sort of life, death, the meaning of everything and how to cope with it, isn't it? It certainly is. And uh, yeah, and this is one of the reasons I, I really enjoyed both books is because you've got a problem. Well, it's probably going to be interest in one of one of these books. Let's start with Dean Rickles's book, Life is Short. Its subtitle promises to show us ways to make it more meaningful. How does he do that? Yeah, so Rickles has a, a couple of strategies for that. Um, I mean, to to understand a little bit of where he's coming from, he says that the world is suffering from a midlife crisis and we tend to sleepwalk through life. And 
he wants to give us a bit of a roadmap to try and focus on living properly. And part of that comes from being more grateful for our time and using time wisely. Um, and so one of my favorite strategies that he talks about is um, there's a metaphor he uses that, you know, our lives are like trees and we have all these different branches which are like possibilities um, that we could take and to live an authentic life is to consciously kind of prune those branches or, or prune off some of the you know the dead branches or the rotting branches so to let other branches grow strong and you know on the one hand it's uh, very anxiety inducing to um, you know have to cut off some of those branches and and also as we get older, you know, we we're growing fewer branches. Um, so the the point is that you know we have to cut off some of those branches to let others flourish, and you know that makes our lives concrete. And so he likens life to either a, like a topiary project or a sculpture that we need to consciously uh, shape um, to. Uh, know that we're really living rather than letting other people like prune our branches for us or rather than you know randomly pruning any branch I mean there's an, an obvious problem I suppose is that you're standing there looking at your branches and you're not quite sure which ones to prune and which ones not to and I suppose that goes back to how we define personally or collectively meaning and meaningfulness and and obviously that is a very individual subject for example you notice that Rickles emphasizes things like healthy eating and being fit rather than for example lying on your sofa eating chocolate but what if that makes you happy what if you're, you're thinking great thoughts while you're lying on your sofa it seemed quite complex sort of subject obviously Right. And and I think that's one of the limitations of this book is that, I mean, it's a short book and, you know, that's part of um, the, the philosophy behind it. It's like life is short. He doesn't want to waste our time, you know, with a long book. So he's kept it very short. But, you know, one of the issues, as you point out, is that um, it lacks some of uh, some nuances like um yeah, like, you know, appreciating the the need for rest sometimes. And, you know, and to Rickles' credit, you know, he does talk about how some people get very um, obsessed with the future and with their future selves and um, do go out and, you know, bodybuild obsessively or, um, you know, overeat. Uh, sorry, no, d just do things um, that are focused on his future self. So, for example, Rickles talks about how when he was 12, he would um, play the piano nonstop until his fingers split open or like in in pursuit of becoming a great musician um, or another example he includes is how he would stay up for days you know reading in you know the pursuit of becoming you know a great philosopher and so he does acknowledge that there are um you know problems with uh focusing too much on our future selves um but also you know his bigger concern seems to be with our you know focus on indulging in pleasures and you know spending too much money or you know having unprotected sex that's you know not thinking about the consequences of our actions um so what one of the um, philosophies that he picks up on to, to discuss this is Derek Puffett, who um, talks about a kid who takes up smoking and that kid doesn't identify with a future self who is going to get cancer. And so the reason why we do detach ourselves from, from future selves is that it's that future self is kind of so abstracted from us and you know, the Rickles answer to this problem is that we need to value our future selves more and, you know, practice delayed gratification. And um, uh, so, yeah, he and so he's he's saying he's saying that it really need we need to try and find a good balance. I'm just simply going to bring the tone down. I'm very sorry, but reading your piece, Guy, and when you get to the bit where he says, well, we shouldn't just be sitting around, as you said, Alex, shouldn't be lying around on the sofa eating chocolate or watching YouTube videos of a monkey riding backwards on a pig. I've d I know exactly which video he means. 
<laughs> and I, I haven't seen it. <laughs> it's actually very funny. As long as the pig and monkey are okay, which I think they are, it's very funny. I and I felt terrible. And then and then I thought, as you said, Alex, but I like you know, I like eating chocolate on the sofa and watching YouTube videos of the pig and the monkey, given as long as they're all right, um, and not being made to ride around. It, it, it does seem a bit sort of, as you sort of pleasure denying, like equating eating chocolate on a sofa with doing, you know, more harmful things. We're really focusing on that. Bit, aren't we, Lucy? <laughs> like, it's, like it somehow pressed a nerve, isn't yeah. it? Can you sense a theme here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think in this um, certainly um, hit a nerve with me too. There was a, a book recently which criticised eating lasagna um, and said, you know, you should you know, not eat the lasagna because it'll make you fat. And, you know, but I take such joy in eating lasagna. And I think it's really important to, to live a balanced life. You know, one of the um, things Rickles brings up is that he talks about um he calls it Senex versus pure. And Senex is like based on Seneca, you know, the old man who's rational, reserved, analytical, anxious um, versus, you know, the pure personality who's very irrational and unbounded and, and just very focused on the present. And he thinks we uh, very much need to grow up and be, you know, more rational and, and analytical and reserved and sees um too many people just indulging in in the short term and indulging in the present. But I do think that there's plenty of space for enjoying the present. And I also think that a lot of people uh, struggle to um, are so caught up in uh, working and you know trying to pay bills that they they literally can't enjoy the present because they are focused on survival. And I think these are some of the nuances that that, that book overlooks. You also very interestingly write about his discussion of the idea of what a long life might be and might entail. You know, if we suddenly could have much, much longer lifespans, he thinks that even over 300 years uh, might actually still feel a bit brief to us. But you made such an interesting point. We would actually have to have completely different brain chemistry and memory capacity because we could live longer, but we wouldn't be able to remember it. Our our previous lives would be lost to us in a sense. Yes, and that's uh, something Rickles points out that, you know, our long-term memory does seem to be, you know, about, what, 80, 90 years, something like that. And so, you know, we, if we were to live you know, much longer lives, we, we just, we would start to forget things once we, we got to that sort of age. So, you know, it's, it's meaningless in a way for us to talk about longer lives without understanding, well, what would our bodies and our brains have, have to look like in order to, to get to that, that sort of age. Um, and this is one of the examples that Rickles talks about, um, Alina Macropolis, um, who, uh, it's a, it's a story and fiction. Um, and she takes drinks immortality potion. Well, it's, I guess it's renewable. She has to keep drinking it in order to live a long life. And she gets to 300 years or a bit more than 300. And she's like, okay, it's time to die. Um, and her rationale is that she comes to realize that death is essential for our lives to have meaning and for our lives to have purpose. If we live longer and our memories stay the same, it just, our lives won't be meaningful. We'll just forget. And so that hard limit of death is like, kind of like a, a neon sign saying, pay attention to the to the life you have now. It, it is a book that tries to address fear of death, isn't it? And, and the sort of longing for immortality that isn't just a longing for more life, but a sort of cheating of death. And I, I'm, I must say, I'm very interested in this because I am a person who's frightened of death some people don't and I know it's a philosophical question isn't it because how can you be frightened of something you're not going to know anything about but it's not an uncommon human emotion in the least is it you know it's variable some people are, are definitely afraid and and there are different reasons why people are afraid are they afraid of growing old and becoming frail um one of the uh reasons the big reasons that um that the author addresses is that, you know, one of our fears is that life will continue on without us. 
and he brings in a couple of arguments for example the Lucretian symmetry argument and he's like well it doesn't make sense if we're not worried about not existing before our birth why are we worried about not existing after our birth and um so actually the fact that humanity does continue on without us is a really important part of making life meaningful and I really love the metaphor he uses, which is that life is like a sandcastle. So um, you know, imagine you're on the beach, you build a sandcastle and it's beautiful um, and, you know, you leave and the thought that it might be washed away or that someone will destroy us is makes us really sad. But he's like, that's like humanity. We are here, we're part of building, you know, something meaningful. We're part of participating in humanity and the fact that it does continue on without us means that being human, being in the universe is is a meaningful thing to do. I guess it's just so sort of personal and emotional, isn't it? I know when people say that they gain comfort, sorry to be turning this into my own personal confession session, by the way, uh, but when people say they, they gain comfort from realising that they're just a speck in the universe, I think that sounds completely terrifying. Maybe I'm just a narcissist. Lucy, rescue me from... from... I can't. No, I can't rescue you, I'm afraid. I can. I completely, absolutely see where you're coming from. I, I would have thought there's some comfort in the idea of things going on. The only thing that I think makes it feel all right is that you're part of a cycle. I mean, I have a kind of slightly kind of green earth mother feeling about it do you know what I mean if you get recycled and then it all starts again does he does 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 Rickles actually help with this or does he just suggest sort of rational Lucretian approaches to it I mean he I think through that sandcastle metaphor he's like yeah just know that it's a good thing that that life goes on without us and yeah it might feel like where it respects in the universe but actually you know, we should realize that those specs are incredibly valuable. And, you know, certainly lots of different specs go into making up a, a sandcastle. And that's something to be proud of. And while we're here, it's important to try and shape our lives into something that that we can be proud of, too. And we're not going to do that lying on the sofa eating chocolate, Lucy, and watching. Well, maybe just maybe just for 10 minutes. <laughs> I'm, yeah, exactly. We must have balance. Let's talk a little bit about Life is Hard. It sounds very different. That's about finding the, the sort of consolation in that kind of positive thinking that we've been talking about than approaching things with realism, facing up to the hard realities of life. Is that is that a fair uh, summation? Yeah, I think that's fair. And Sadia, he comes from the perspective that no one is immune to hardship and that, you know, there is no cure for the human condition. And, you know, we've all been dealt, you know, a, a tough lot, but philosophy can help us think through some of these, these challenges. And it really comes from the perspective that there is solace in acknowledgement of these the ways we suffer and instead of trying to constantly escape you know the, the suffering and escape the pain and ignoring it and overlooking it and brushing it under the carpet um, if we can actually look closer and try and understand the pain then that can be helpful and so his his underlying idea is that the only way out of suffering is through even though we might not be able to ever actually escape suffering and the goal for him is not happiness the goal is about living well and thinking about how we live well how we cope how we find what's worthwhile in our lives tell us a little bit about uh, the odyssey that you describe and, and relate to what he's talking about, the belief that if something's hard, you will benefit from it, which sounds obviously a very kind of tough sort of way of looking at life, that somehow hardship does, but suffering has value. Um, what, how does he approach it and what, what's your view of that? Yeah, I don't think he's romanticising suffering as such, but he he argues that a good life has good things in it, but also any good life has lots of good things that aren't in it. And just because we don't have all the good things in our life doesn't make it a bad life. And 
I think one of the examples he brings up is about disabilities. Um, so for example, having a disability prevents people from doing some valuable things, but his point is that no one has access to everything that's valuable in the world and it's okay not to have some of those things. Um, although he does acknowledge that some things are just too devastating not to have in your life and that's why accommodations for differing abilities is really important. Um, and I think one of the most powerful examples that he draws on for this is Harriet McBride Johnson, who uh, had muscular dystrophy, and she had a debate with Peter Singer, and because Peter Singer had argued that um, people with uh, babies born with muscular dystrophy should be um, allowed to be euthanized. Um, but Harriet McBride Johnson went on to become a lawyer and a disability activist. And so her life, even though there were there was many things that she couldn't do, she still had a really exciting and, and interesting and life full of good things. It's, it's fascinating, though, isn't it? Because it, it points up how the kind of arguments that we have about these issues in both of these books are hugely affected by the political and social and intellectual context of the time because I mean nobody thinks that you know eugenicism has gone away forever but we don't have those kind of conversations in serious intellectual circles about euthanizing babies with particular conditions do we I mean we did that that's not what we think of as a sane and rational and caring society any longer. Can I ask a question about some about the theodicy and that he's? I got the impression from your piece. I might be wrong that he's very much not of the school. You know that Nietzsche quote that everyone says that what well, that that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I get the impression that he doesn't sign up to that at all, he, and he doesn't he doesn't that believe that thing of oh well it must be for a reason and something will good will come out of it. Is that right? I think that's correct. Yes. Um, and he's said he's really writing against Aristotle, who was advocating for that we should all live the best possible life, and uh, the best kind of life is one that that flourishes, and it's all about eudaimonia. Um, but Sadie's point is that often we actually can't live the best possible life, and you know, sort of striving for the best possible life is only going to be disappointing because you know where where we may not be stronger out of all these these challenges. Mm. And one I, of the... I always thought that that which does not kill you may well make you weaker. It's quite likely to, I would have thought. Yeah, and I think yeah, Seti is is of the the same view. Um, and you know, and, and in fact, one of my favorite parts of Seti's book was where he challenges this um, idea. You know, when people say, "Oh, don't worry, everything will be fine. Everything happens for a reason. It all works out." And he points out, like, I, I always knew that, like, I was always uncomfortable with, with that statement, but he's really sort of explains why. And he says it's because if someone says that to you, they're denying your suffering. They're sort of refusing to acknowledge that that you're suffering. And and yeah, this is the, the idea of theodicy, that there's like God or some kind of divine or secret energy operating in the universe. And said his point is that, no, sometimes things happen for no reason and we we actually don't deserve to suffer. And so the best thing to do is try and embrace that fact, embrace the fact that we, we do suffer, we're going to suffer, other people are suffering and look for ways to work through it given those facts. And one of the big things he says is, or one of the big pieces of advice is that you know we can find um uh, sources of um, consolation in solidarities and compassion and knowing that other people suffer too and knowing that we're not alone in our suffering. All of those things can be practised from the comfort of one's own sofa occasionally. I mean, not exclusively, but occasionally. I, I must say, Lucy, and I hope you noticed this too, one of the things that he did say brought him joy was starting a podcast. So, you know, there we he did, are. Yes, he did. Yes, because he I obviously was, um, noticed that. Talking to people. Yeah, of course. It, it reminds me both of both of these things. It, it weirdly it reminds me of the the title of another podcast we did about John Donne, 
I think, Alex, were you talking to Catherine Rundell? And it's yeah. that wonderful John Donne quote, it is an astonishment to be alive. And Donne's not pretending that there isn't an awful lot of suffering and problems and awfulness. And there was a lot in his life, wasn't there? As we lots and lots, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but 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 his, his, I mean, it's a, not everybody can have that mindset. I think it's a, a bit of a gift, actually. But But his mindset was, it's amazing to be here. I'm, I'm afraid we have to stop being literally here in this space because we've run out of time. But I was just so interested by the, the way that you, as a philosopher, Sky, reacted to these books, which are, in some ways you can see it sitting in a kind of you know, self-help sort of section, but, but obviously have a philosophical grounding to them. Would you recommend them to our listeners? I do recommend them. Yeah, if if you're the kind of person who is um, lusting for immortality, then I definitely recommend the Life is Short book. But if you're a, a person who is suffering, whether it's from grief or loneliness or failure or um, uh, you know infirmities, then I think Sedia's book is one that can definitely um, help us, uh, you know, bring our attention to these these challenges of life. And it certainly helped help me uh, reflect on my life too. Thank you so much for joining us, Sky Cleary. Thank you. We really appreciated it. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, Lucy. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Nat Segnet and Sky Cleary. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Lucy Ditchmont. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, Alex Clark, goodbye 